Good morning, church. We're going to begin our service today with the reading of God's Word. Everybody find your seats. We're going to begin our service this morning with the reading of God's Word. And one of the things I wanted to do that's a little bit different is I wanted us all to stand as we read the Word of God. And then I wanted us also at the end, when the reading is finished, my friend Matt Sutherland here, give him a hand. My friend Matt Sutherland here is going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And then the congregation responds, there you go. Some old traditions coming through. So, uh, and, and, uh, so, so the response of the congregation is thanks be to God. It's just something I want to try. I enjoy doing it because I think it kind of helps us all lean in a little bit to what's being said. So Matt, why don't you take it away? Today's passage is Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And I quote, we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. These are the words of Abraham Lincoln on March 30th, 1863. He sent this out in a proclamation in the midst of the Civil War, asking the nation to basically have this national day of fasting and of prayer, to look at our national sins and to repent of them. And he wondered before he sent in the, in the beginning part of this proclamation, he wondered I wonder if, if what desolates our land currently, this, this war we find ourselves in the bloodshed, I wonder if this is because we have forgotten God. I wonder if this is because of our sins that maybe God has brought this upon us. And while I'm not commenting on that, what I am commenting on is the heart of the man there. Just to say, we've forgotten you, God. And while there... Uh, if we think of our own time, we're not in the midst of a war to wake us up to maybe to the reality of things, but that's often what it takes, is it not? It takes things in our life happening. You know, one of the, one of the most prominent marks, uh, markers of our culture is that it's one that has forgotten God. Many uh, Christian cultural commentators have said this and agree that it's a main characteristic of our current culture. And in fact, I'd say our culture is an expert at creating not real atheists per se, but functional atheists out of a lot of us. Meaning the way we often live our lives for quite some time, we can go on in our lives for quite some time 
without any consideration of who God is, how much we need him and what he says about reality. We may have moments when we're awoken to our vulnerability and need for God through a medical diagnosis or through relational pain and difficulty, near-death experiences, moral failures or tragedies, which remind us of life's fragility and our need for him. But we can live our lives often seemingly unburdened and quite comfortable. But the reality is, is that we're, we're really just medicated enough to not notice our burdens or our weariness. And I don't say medicated to intentionally disparage medicine in any way. Just like anything else, medicine can be a great help uh, in proper amounts and in applications, or it can also be abused, just like anything. So I'm not commenting on that. What I mean by, the, by that word is by way of analogy, in the sense that the majority of medicines only touch the visible symptoms that we see. They don't address the root issue or the root cause. So what we do or take in or use in our lives often aids us in alleviating the symptoms that we all feel. So what are some of those things? Things like sadness, depression, rejection, fear, anxiety, anger, resentment, jealousy, ungratefulness, hopelessness, the things that, we often, that often pain us in our lives that we don't like to feel but that often are sometimes present. And we will do anything not to feel those, right? Like the variety of burdens that we so often labor to carry and the weariness which comes with them to distract ourselves from them so that we do not have time to really evaluate our current state. Because if we did have time to evaluate our current state, how are we really doing? We might not know what to do. We might be even more stuck where we fear that we'll be more stuck than our feelings already tell us that we are. And so we turn to things to alleviate our awareness of these, right? Of these burdens. It's, it's this medicating of ourselves through media, food, comfort, security, work, money, what money buys us, keeping ourselves busy, hobbies, vacations, travel, comfort, luxury, taking up causes in our society and our world, even the good ones, political involvement. And did I mention media, food, and comfort? Like none of these things are bad in and of themselves. They're all good things. But these are the usual suspects that we take in excess often in order to kind of medicate ourselves so that we don't actually feel that we need to come to Jesus for anything. Right? <laughs> That's the cutest thing I've seen all day. No, it's great. You're, he's fine. He's not distracting. It was just I looked up, I saw this adorable face in the midst of my hounding you. And I'm not trying to hound you. Uh, what I want, though, is for us to feel our need, honestly. And so often we come in a little medicated on the things that we use in our lives to make us feel better. And even we use church sometimes in that. We're going to come to church and get an inspirational, heartfelt message that's going to encourage me. And I hope that's all it is. I hope he doesn't convict me because then I might have to change things. We can even use church like that. So... This is what we do often, and Jesus actually tells us that he's not calling those to him who, who are ignorant of their need. He's calling those to him who know and are aware that they are laboring and heavy laden. He doesn't say, come to me, you who are comfortable and need free. And that's not to say that those who don't need Jesus are comfortable and need free. It's just that they don't realize their need. So they who are awake, uh, those who are awake to the need that they have is who Jesus is seeking. The reality is, though, that 
everyone has moments when they are awake to their need. They feel their need and it either drives them to medicate, so to speak, more with the things that we mentioned before, those, that list of things, or it drives them to seek out the one that they are made for, to seek out God. The really hard part, though, is that once we finally seek God, whether it's our first time and we don't know Jesus and we come to him, or maybe it's been a long time, or it's maybe just been long enough that we begin to forget who God is and what he's like. And so we begin to import our own imaginations of what God is like based on what we know of our own sinful hearts, or maybe perhaps our earthly father or mother or someone else that was in authority over us. We import what we, what we think about them and what God will be like when we come to him. And what's funny about those things that we import, which is kind of telling of where they come from, which I believe is Satan the deceiver. That's his name, it's what he does. It's his chief titles, the accuser, the, the, the deceiver. And that when, when what's, what's amazing about those things that we import about God is that they never make God more gentle, humble, meek, kind, approachable, ready to receive you, etc. They always make him harder to approach, right? So I think it's one of the ways you can call out a lie. And that's, how, that's why we need the scriptures to compare ourselves against. But this is kind of where we find ourselves. You know, when we finally do realize our need it's hard, to come to, it's hard to come to Jesus because he may not be, what, what, what will he be like? I know I've been unfaithful. I know I've missed the mark. How is he going to receive me? And I mean, I messed up big time recently. How do I come to him knowing that he's going to be helpful and kind and receive me? There's this, uh, my daughter and I are reading The uh, Magician's Nephew. Just in the, the series in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you don't know the series, many, many of you probably do. Um, but it was written by C.S. Lewis. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in The Magician's Nephew, there's this guy named Uncle Andrew. And he's, he's kind of one of the primary characters, but uh, he's, he's, not the, he's not the guy you, you like. He's kind of pitiful. And even in some ways, you kind of disdain him a little bit for the things he does to the children in the story. And he finds himself in Narnia which if you don't know the story, it's like this beautiful land that like everything is good and pure and right. But for him, because his heart isn't pure and good and right, everything feels awful and he hates it and he's scared of everything. And he has such a horrible time there that he, he just becomes in this like catatonic state of fright and he can't do anything else but just like sit there and huddle in sheer terror when everyone else around him is like, this is the most amazing place I've ever been. But for him, all he is is in this state of fear and terror. And Aslan in the story is this lion, this scary lion. Sometimes it's scary, but also he's good. And he's, he's, like, he's like the Christ figure. He represents Jesus. And at one point, Aslan says this. He says, bring out that creature, <laughs> referring to Uncle Andrew. And one of the elephants, you can read the story, lifted, lifted Uncle Andrew in its trunk and this is not scripture, this is C.S. Lewis's story, uh, lifted Uncle Andrew in its trunk and laid him at the lion's feet. He was too frightened to move, Uncle Andrew was. Please, Aslan, said Polly, one of the main characters in the story, could you say something to unfrighten him, she says. And Aslan said, I cannot tell that to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He is... I cried when I read this in the story with my daughter. I was like, one moment.
moment, honey. He said, he has, he has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. But I will give him the only gift he is still able to receive. And he bowed his great head rather sadly and breathed in the magician's terrified face. Sleep, he said. Sleep and be separated for some few hours from all the torments you have devised for yourself. Uncle Andrew immediately rolled over with closed eyes and began breathing peacefully. It's often how we see God that determines if we come to him or not. It's the things we do to ourselves often and the torments we devise for ourselves that keep us from him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love that what Aslan does for him is the last thing he's able to receive is just some sleep. How many people do we know are just exhausted, burdened, worried by the cares of the world, and that's like their last grace is getting in bed, and they don't want to get up out of bed in the morning. They just want to sleep. They want to keep hitting snooze because they just don't like their life. And this is, that's Aslan's last gift is because you can't hear anything else. And so what's the instruction here? What I want to do for today, my, my heart, is I just want us to simply see the scriptures. And if we really believe that these are the words of God, that the scriptures are from God, that we can believe and trust that the, these words are who God is. And what's so amazing about this is that this is what the gospel says. <laughs> like, this is God's word to us. We have here, one of the, Joe said this last week, we have here one of the only places in scripture where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And this is not insignificant, you know, in any way. Like the, the biblical understanding of heart is that it's central to who a person is. You can go to the next slide. Biblically, it's not, it's, it's not a part of us, but it's the center of us. It's the center of who we are. So biblically, our heart is what defines, directs, guides, and guides us. Solomon in Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And this is what we're told that Jesus' heart is. He says, for I am humble, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So biblically, the idea that Jesus is drawing on is that out of the depths of him, what drives him most is gentleness and humility. And that seems like a simple concept until you think about who he is. Like, who is this Jesus? He, he is the manifestation of God himself. And to think that he could that this is the vessel that he would take, this is the approach to me that he would take, it's just, it's unbelievable. And that's what I want to just even unpack for us. So what does he mean even by I am gentle and humble of heart? He says this. So know that biblically he's saying this is the heart, this is the center out of which I do everything. 
And so what, is it, what does he mean when he says, I am gentle? The word there for gentle is used a number of different ways in the scripture, but one is in Matthew 5, 5 in the Beatitudes where he said that the meek will inherit the earth. So he describes himself as meek. And meekness is like uh, strength under control, strength in self-control. It's a sub- willingness to submit one to another's authority. Isn't that amazing? Matthew 21.15 or 21.5 uh, is the next verse where this word is used. And it's that he's humble and it's describing Jesus, this prophecy that, that foretold of Jesus riding into Israel mounted on a donkey like of humble estate, not riding on this big horse with a parade, but he's coming in on a work pack animal, like a, a pack horse. He's coming in on this work animal that was a common thing. So he's, he's arriving in humility. And then 1 Peter 3, 4, speaking to wives, this word is used where it says that, where, P, where Peter encourages them to nurture a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is the word that Jesus selects for himself. That he's, that he's gentle, that he's humble. So meek, humble, gentle, his heart, the things that drives all that he does is meek and humble and gentle. He's not quick-tempered. He's not quick to anger. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not on a hair trigger. He's gentle. He's the most understanding and self-controlled person you'll ever know in your life. The, the posture, one, one the theologian said the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Like that's the God that you come to, is one that is humble and gentle. And he says this, he says, I am humble or lowly. So he says, I am gentle and I am humble or lowly. And you, you might be going, wait, does he say humble first or gentle? Exactly. The, both words are so related that they're kind of like overlapping terms. So the meaning of this word humble overlaps greatly with gentle. And so the word is translated humble in one other place in the New Testament. But throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's actually translated uh, speaking of someone who, who, who is of low estate or destitute thrust down by life circumstances, or those who are of low social standing. Meaning the people that Jesus is talking to in his day, who are they used to? They, they're used to Roman centurions and Caesar who has guarded and you can't approach him. And if you try to approach him, you'll probably die. So he's speaking to people who aren't used to having accessibility to those at the top. And he says, no, 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 I'm not like that. I'm like the guy sitting on the street corner. Like, that's how approachable I am. You don't feel intimidated by, by me. You can approach me, and there's nothing that would keep you from approaching me. The only thing that keeps you from approaching me is your own pride, really. That there's a lowliness to Jesus that even offends us if we're too prideful. And this is who Jesus is. Isn't this amazing? So when you combine the overlapping meanings of I am gentle and humble, lowly in heart, you get this picture again of the most kind and understanding person you'll ever know with open arms held out to you, who is accessible and approachable and who is also all powerful. In the previous verse, what did we read when Matt read? He said, all things have been committed to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And then come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like this, this is the God that we serve, that he has all authority, and yet he's approachable and on our level. 
This is good news, church, is it not? What's so funny is that we come to this and we hear this and we go, okay, I understand it, but it still doesn't really sometimes land with us or even the, the reality of it is even hard to understand. I think part of it is because what we see in the world, this isn't what we expect. We often see and experience others to be unlike this. Like the people in Jesus' day would have been thinking of the Roman centurions or of Caesar, those in positions of power, but even more so, God himself. How much more guarded and separate is he? And so there's this book, I don't know if you've heard of it before, called The 48 Laws of Power. Um, It's actually a New York Times bestseller. I think 4.7 stars on Amazon is what it currently is rated at. And the 48 laws of power, I recently was in a discussion or a conversation with someone and they were talking about, they, they recommended reading this book because I was like, you know, it helps you kind of understand what's going on in different business dynamics. And I started reading it and I was like, oh, I would never recommend this to anyone. And I really, we, we talked through it and it was like, oh, okay, well, it's actually, I mean, like this is what the person was saying is that this is actually what goes on in the world. And I was like, oh yeah, Absolutely. But as I began to read it, you realize, man, like much of this is so antithetical to the way of Jesus, it's not even funny. But it's a New York Times bestseller. I can't tell you how many uh, things I've read that, are, that it recommend it and say, if you're going to go into the business world, you need this to be able to navigate your way by pushing it. And some of the laws of power are crush your enemy totally, which sounds a little bit different from Jesus' teaching on that, I think. Never outshine the master, meaning the people above you, meaning you got you to kind of keep yourself lowly because you don't want to outshine the person above you because they may get je- jealous. So you kind of stay under the radar until you can come up at the, at, the, at the opportune time. Always conceal your intentions is one of the laws. Keep others dependent upon you. Like maneuver in such a way as to keep people dependent upon you. That way you'll have power over them. You never put, too much, tr- never put too much trust in friends and learn how to use your enemies is one of the laws. Court attention at all costs, meaning be in the spotlight as much as you can because it gives you power and influence. And I could go on. There's worse ones than that even. And he even admits a lot of his work is drawn from Machiavelli and other writers. You're like, I would not propose these people as a, as a path through life to follow. But, I mean, is this not what we see in the world and what people often just devolve to? Not, on, not, not because they've read this book. Honestly, a lot of the things he notes are things that just happen in the business and in the workplace. And his followers of Jesus were literally living a life that is antithetical to that, that is opposite of that. And part of our living it is our witness. Amen? So... And what's so funny about this is this is like little people in offices (laughs) doing these like power struggles. It's comical to me, I think, really. It's like looking in the mirror and trying to be like, I'm going to exercise my power and I have to go take a poo first. (laughs) Like, like really, I I, I say that with laughter because it's, it's ridiculous to look at ourselves and say, I'm going to puff myself up to be all powerful but I need to eat less cheeseburgers or I might have a heart attack. It's like, we're so vulnerable. Like like everything about me is vulnerable and weak and needy. 
and to lie to myself and try to put myself in this position of God. That's what happened in the garden. And that's what we see in our culture. And that's what we kind of devolve to when we don't follow the way of Jesus. It's not like optional, like we either follow Jesus or we pick a middle path that like I'm a really good person, I'm just kind, or this other horrible way with Machiavelli and other people. It's like, no, it's Jesus' way or something else that's not Jesus' way. So this is the one who has all power, real power. It says this, uh, this is Daniel Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly, which I highly recommend to you. It says, Job talked about it last week. The one whom God is, this is Jesus, the one who has all power. He's the one whom God is highly exalted, at whose name every knee will one day bow in submission. This is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose voice is like a roar of many waters and who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, this is the one so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot adequately be captured with words. So ineffably magnificent that all the language, all language dies away before his splendor. This is the one whose deepest heart is more than anything gentle and lowly. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections or our, our, our preferences and startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections, it's a fun word to say, infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It is his very heart. Jesus himself said so. Like that's the God we serve. Isn't that good news? I find that when I really look at myself, that is incredibly good news because I am desperate for him. I mean, you know, pondering my own heart. In this fast, God's been doing a lot of different things in me. And I was like, some of what I've been pondering is like, man, Lord, I feel like there's times when, uh, when I doubt your, uh, your coming through when I need it. When I really trust you and lay it out, like, God, are you, you going to really come through when I am vulnerable in the state? And I've been pondering, Lord, I feel like there's times when my faith stumbles in those moments. And so I was processing that with the Lord. And I was close to maybe being honest with myself about some things. And Lord, how are you working? And, and I was on my computer re- reading something and I saw this ad come up for a, for a Kindle, for a Kindle. And I have some books in my Kindle Amazon. And I immediately was like, you need a Kindle right now, Donnie. You need a Kindle right now. And so I spent the next 30 minutes researching Kindles and the, the, the different versions they come in. At the moment, I was like getting close to like getting to the bottom of my heart my flesh or the enemy or whatever was like, you need a Kindle. And I was like, yes, I do. And it's like, and I realized about 30 minutes of burning my day that I was like, what am I doing? And I, I may get a Kindle, no promises. But, but the, point, the point being was that in the moment of like, I was near to the Lord actually maybe breaking through and talking to me, I distracted myself. And that's a small, simple, funny example, but there's probably much worse ones that I didn't think of. But I'm so clever and skilled at deceiving and distracting myself. And I'm surrounded by resources to do so all the time. 
and surrounded by entities that have monetized my attention. I'm the product, you know, for Facebook and Instagram. I'm the product they're selling to, to people who want to sell me things. And they're aggressive because they know it works. I must live my life on guard. So th this is why we're fasting. We're not fasting to torture ourselves, but to take away what numbs our pains so we actually feel them. You know, when you're taking medication that numbs you, you're like, all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, that actually really hurts. And you can identify a little bit more of where the source of the problem comes from. And then we can finally go to the great physician and realize he doesn't want to chop your leg off, but he wants to actually heal you. And he wants to help you and help you go, grow closer to him. Um, and a lot of that is about our habits, though. That's why we're fasting. Uh, I went to Legoland the other day um, with my son on a school field trip. And the teacher came to me and, sh and said, she said, we're, uh, there's going to be another student in your group with you and your son, Lachlan. He's a bit hard to deal with. She was warning me that he's, he's, he's difficult to deal with. And so I was like, okay, all right, Legoland, here we come. So it was about three and a half hours of being at Legoland. And I, I, I met this gentleman and being that she had prepped me, I, I, I said, hey, buddy, come here. And I called him to me. I'm not going to use his name, but called him to me and I said, hey, look at my eyes. And he was like, you know, we're at Legoland. I said, hey, buddy, look at my eyes. And I sat there for a while. I said, hey, look at my eyes. And he finally did. And I said, all right, listen, I said, we're going to have a really good day today. I said, but a big part of that depends on if you can listen to me and hear my voice. I said, if you don't listen, then we're going to have a bad day. We're going to have to get Miss Sosa involved and it's not going to be good. I said, but if you can listen to me, I trust it. Just trust me. You're going to have the best day you've ever had at Legoland. It's going to be awesome. But if you need to go somewhere, come and talk to me first. If you, need to, if you want to go see something, come and tell me first, and then we can go together. Or I may have you wait, but either way, you need to come to me first. And I wasn't setting up this analogy for this sermon either. But, it was, but I realized this afterwards. But I was saying, come to me first. And he actually did it. Like the whole day, he would, I would see him start to run off to somewhere and he would stop and he would turn back and look at me. And I was watching him already and he would go, and I'd go, no, not right now, come back. And he would go, and come back. But he would, he would do that. And sometimes he would say, can we go over here? I'd go, yeah, let's go. And I'd call Lachlan, we'd go over there together. But he would always check with me first. And he got in a habit, three hours of doing this. If you've ever been to Legoland, there's lots to do. He was all over the place, so lots of checking with me, but it was great. We had a great day. There weren't some issues here and there, but he did great. And at the end of the day, we, get, uh, we were playing on this little playground thing that you can't really see into for the adults. It's like they go around the corner and they disappear. And I had noticed that he would go around the corner, all the other kids would go in and would disappear, but he would always come back out and go in a different way. So I was like, whatever, I didn't really think much of it. But at the end of the day, he comes out. And he comes right up to me and he stands there, like, let's say this is me. And he stands there and he kind of just stands there facing me, but awkwardly close, like right here. And I was like, hey, buddy, what's up? I was like, we only have like, you know, six minutes more to play before we have to go. Uh, and he goes, heights. And I was like, what? I bent down and said, what'd you say? And he goes, I don't, I don't like heights. And I was like, you don't like heights? I was like, is there something high in there that you're afraid of? And he goes, yeah. I was like, all right, can you show me? And so he took me in there and there was this little piece where he had to like stretch himself and there was like a drop beneath and he was scared of that drop. And so I stood there, I said, hey, I know I don't know you very long, but I know you can do it, but like you can do this and I'm gonna stand here while you do it. 
And I coached him to put your hand here, put your leg here. And he did it. And he got across. And I was like, yes, that's so good. And I cheered him. And he had a big smile. And he ran off and played. And I was like, that's so awesome. And I didn't think about it until my wife yesterday. She was like, I think you need to think about Legoland more. I feel like the Lord has something there for your sermon. <laughs> and I was like, all right, sure, hun. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And I sat there thinking for probably 30 minutes or so. And then I remembered that that happened. And I think what's so powerful about that is that he had built up a habit of coming to me when he needed something or when he wanted to do something. And so when something came that was difficult or scary for him, he came to me. And even after just three hours of doing that, he learned to come to me and I helped him. And I'm not God. I'm, I'm a man with faults, but I was able to help him as a, as, a, as a man trying to be a good father. And God is that much more of a good father to you. And he wants to help you, but so much of our life is about the habits we build up. And that's what fasting is about, is removing the things that clutter us to say yes to the things that are best for us, for coming to Jesus. Does that make sense? So we've often forgotten God and the things that we medicate ourselves with, like we started with. But part of fasting, again, is removing those things so we can remember not only how to come to God, but we can remember who he is and what he's like. So I want to take the last, um, I want to take the last five minutes here. It's 11.24, three minutes. If we can have the band come up. I want to take the last three minutes here just to give us some time to process, honestly. I feel like there's a thousand things I could just finish and close with, but at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's the best at speaking to you and helping you. Not me, not what we can preach up here. It's like, he's your good counselor. He's the one that wants to help you. So if you don't know who God is, like he wants to speak to you today, you should open yourself up and say, Jesus, I'm desperate. I want to come to you. Would you help me? Holy Spirit, I believe he's going to speak to you. And if you've come to Jesus before and many times and you're afraid of what he's like, I entrust the scripture to you to say he loves you, he cares about you, and he's good, and he's gentle, and he's humble, he's approachable. So these are the questions I have just to help you, if you can bring up that slide. So what are the things that you turn to in order to numb or medicate yourself when you feel sad, depressed, rejected, fear, anxiety, anger, resentment, jealousy, ungratefulness, hopelessness, etc.? What are those things that you turn to in order to numb or medicate yourself? When you think of coming to Jesus with your burdens, the ones mentioned above, what do you think or expect he'll say to you? And how is that different from the truth of scripture that his disposition towards you is gentle and humble? And what are some ways you believe that God is calling you to continue to live your lives in him? In Colossians 2, it talks about that, that we want to continue to live our lives in Jesus so how is he leading you to lean into life with Jesus together with his bride, the church? Those are questions for, for reflection. If they help, great. If they don't, put them aside and just ask the Holy Spirit what he's speaking. But I want to give a good three minutes or so just of quiet for you to process and to think. I'm going to pray us into that. Jesus, we just pray that you'd speak, God, to us. You'd help us to understand our hearts and to speak into us. And Lord, just as, as the piano plays, Lord, and as we just listen, God, I pray that we would be able to hear your voice. And all the things that we do to not hear your voice, like Uncle Andrew in the story. God, would you remove those things? Would you help us to just be laid bare before you, to not hear roarings from you, but to hear your, your gentle and your humble voice that's so kind and so good. We just open ourselves up to you, Holy Spirit.
worship. And I just encourage you as you're listening to the Lord um, to not in there. If you, Holy Spirit may be speaking to you, way to go, keep it up in the fast and what you're doing. Like you're nearing my heart, like my, I'm opening my heart to you. Keep it up, keep pursuing me. It may be a gentle encouragement to press in more. It may be you haven't done anything or you feel like there's just a block between you and the Lord and you can't, there's whatever, wherever you find yourself today, I just know and trust that the Holy Spirit has you and I just want you to do something with it. Whether it's you tell the person next to you, we have prayer, our prayer and prophetic team is gonna be up here, not so that we can parade you down to the front and pray for you, no one cares. <laughs> I mean, we care, but no one is watching. No one's looking to think, if anything, you're helping someone come down for prayer who maybe feels scared and you coming down just kind of unlocks the door. Or maybe you just pray with the person next to you, ask for prayer, you pray with your life group leader later after you've processed this more. Whatever it looks like, I just encourage us with whatever the Lord is speaking that you would take that next step. Because in that next step of obedience is often where God begins to speak and help us and lead us as we come to him and not run from him, but come to him as he is always humble and gentle toward us, even though he is all powerful and good, that we can trust him as we come to him. Please stand as we worship.